Father, we thank you that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the, pre- in the, in the midst. And so, Lord, as we think of you here with us this morning, we know that you have divine purpose for each of us. You have something you want to say to each of us individually. And so as we focus on your word, I pray that the communion will be, be between us and you, individually as well as corporately. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit will, will guide every thought, every word, that you will be honored, that nothing will be said that in any way diminishes from your word or from who you are. And I ask that you will be exalted. And I ask that in every one of our classes this morning throughout this complex that you will be powerfully present. And in the service that is concurrently taking place. We ask, Lord, as the word of God is proclaimed throughout this city, throughout this state, and throughout the world, that you will transform many lives today, that many will be born into your kingdom, and others will return to the fold and and will uh, repent of walking in ways other than the way that you have commanded. Lord, I pray that we will be clay in the potter's hand and that you will shape us and mold us today into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the 31st chapter of Numbers, you and I, over the last couple of Sundays, have read how God used his people, Israel, as an instrument of judgment upon the wicked nation Midian. And, and we talked just briefly about the background of Midian, uh, that Midian was descended actually from Abraham, as was Israel. And yet Midian had gotten away from following the Lord. At least this branch of Midian had. The branch of Midian that Moses' father-in-law Jethro lived may still have been following the Lord. We don't know. But we know that this particular group of Midianites had become a very, very pagan, godless people. Because of the willing obedience of Israel to carry out this, this awful request of God, to do it willingly, um, God not only blessed them with victory, a stunning victory actually, but God blessed them with the spoils of war. And then beyond that, we discover something very remarkable as we begin reading at verse 48 of this chapter, for 31 of Numbers. Just how great was this victory? And we find out from 48 to 54 uh, the answer to that question. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds, approached Moses. <laughs> And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So we have brought as an offering to the Lord what each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eliezer took the the priest... (coughs) took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles. And all the gold of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty every man for himself. So Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold from the captains of the thousands and of the hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord." As I emphasized last time, the number of adult males within Midian must have been at least triple the size of the Israelite army that was sent to deal with them. 
And even though the attack may have been a surprise attack, whatever the case, the Midianites should have recovered to the extent that they would have extracted life from Israel. But what we discover that of the 12,000 men, 1,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that had been authorized by Moses and led by God into the attack, not a single one of them had been killed. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing concept. Even though God has used his people numerous times, uh, will, as we'll be seeing, uh, to accomplish his judgment, there always seems to be some loss of life on the part of Israel. But in this instance, not a single soldier was lost. And what is interesting is the captains of the thousands and the captains of the, hungry, uh, of the hundreds were so awestruck by this, they knew it could only be because of God's divine intervention. It couldn't have been for any other reason, because that's not what warfare is like in those days. I mean, in those days, we're talking about man-to-man, nose-to-nose, stab, hack, stick, you know. I mean, none of this stuff 200 yards away behind hills shooting at each other. You're, you're nose-to-nose. And, and to come through that, um, you know, without being killed is utterly amazing, especially when you consider the fact that wounding in those days often led to death shortly thereafter because they had little knowledge of medicine, they had no knowledge of uh, anesthetics or anesthesias, and as a result, obviously, men often died of their wounds. What we discover here is the humble attitude, which <laughs> so often we have discovered as we've read through other passages of Scripture, didn't particularly, wasn't normally displayed by Israelite leaders, but here we discover that the army officers come before Moses and before Eliezer with a, with a great deal of humility, and they refer to themselves as Moses' servants. You know, they could have come back and said, hey man, we, we just wiped out those Midianites, and we're obviously cool, and we're good, right? And all kinds of things could have been thought by these men, but they not only acknowledge Moses as their commander-in-chief, they acknowledge that he was God's representative in their midst. Matthew Henry makes this statement in his commentary. He says, instead of coming to Moses to demand a recompense for the good service they had done in avenging the Lord against Midian, or to set up trophies of their victory for the immortalizing of their own names, they bring an oblation to make atonement for their souls. I mean, that is so opposite. The, the, the arrogant, look what we did, to the standing before the Lord in utter humility, knowing that he did it all, they were simply his instrument for accomplishing his purpose. We last week looked at what Israel gained from this conquest. All the, the young females that became part of Israel as a result from the Midianite nation, and all the animals, 800,000 animals that became part of the, uh, the booty, I guess you could say. In addition to all of that, though, they had looted Midian of all other portable wealth. And then, of course, what they didn't want, they had burned, as we read before. Now, among that loot was a great deal of gold. Now, if you ever study the history of gold, you discover gold has been popular with human beings for a very long time. We can trace human interest in gold back at least 5,000 years, and we have archaeological and written records that go back nearly that far, archaeological records that do go back that far, of the importance of gold because it's buried with, with people in tombs. And, and so gold was important in this particular day. You have to remember there were no Visa cards, no Master cards, you know, no checks that you could write, no places you could borrow money to go into hock for 17 years because you want this thing. <laughs> 
gold was the wealth that was available. And the more gold you possessed, the greater, of course, was your temporal power. And so they looted this gold. Everywhere they, saw, they found it, they took it, of course. Why not? They were defeating the, the Midianite people. They were wiping him out. And so they took every implement, every ornament of gold that they found. What, when it became obvious to them that this incredible victory was the product of the Lord's unmerited favor upon them, it was the natural reaction. I mean, they were just overwhelmed with gratitude. Have you ever been overwhelmed with gratitude to God? Now, sometimes it seems like we go through our lives and we're kind of almost functioning like robots in our daily activity, and we don't even stop to think the fact that, oh, you know, we probably say grace over our meal. Lord, thank you for this food. We're really grateful. Amen. <laughs> or, I don't know, if you remember the old uh, movies with Mom and Pa Kettle, <laughs> he used to say, much obliged, and they would all dive into the, <laughs> dive into the food. Do we ever get to the place where we're overwhelmed with gratitude to God that we realize that if it weren't for Him, we would have not only not have anything, we wouldn't have any hope? I mean, I, I mean, we'd live like most of the world lives today, and no wonder they take drugs, no wonder they get drunk, no wonder they jump off of buildings. I mean, there's no hope. If what we have in this life is all there is, we don't have much. And so these men, sensing the fact that it's not possible for 12,000 men to come back from this, this kind of a warfare, all of them intact, without God having made that possible for them. And so this, this gratitude just flows from deep within, and the officers take up a collection so that they can make a free will offering to the Lord. And they call this offering one to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Now, what we discover, I think, from the passages, there is nothing here that is in the way of sin or guilt that needs to motivate this atonement. So the, the, the atonement seems to be in their acknowledging their unworthiness of what God has done for them. There's not a one of us in this room who's worthy of what God has done for us. He hasn't done it for us because of our worthiness. And yet, He has made us worthy before himself. I, I just caught a little snippet of Lutzer this morning, and uh, he, he was making a comment about a man who had come to know Christ after he had been infected with the AIDS virus because of his gay lifestyle. He had been transformed by the Lord and redeemed and became a man of God, and, and yet within two years he died of AIDS, and he made the comment that that man would stand before the Lord as righteous as Christ because of the righteousness of Christ that had cleansed him. And if that isn't something to have great gratitude for, I don't know what there is to have gratitude for. Because none of us is worthy to stand before Christ, no matter how good we think our lifestyle may be or have been, because we're all unworthy. And, and so these men make this atonement sacrifice, this, this offering, uh, acknowledging their unworthiness of this wonderful gift of God's grace and mercy this wonderful gift of God's grace and mercy to them. I, I don't know how much Israel understood at that time that they were called by God not because they were good, uh, not because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were extra special people, but they were called by God because simply God had chosen to call them. 
In fact, Scripture tells us that God did not choose Israel because they were the mightiest of all nations. He chose Israel partly because they were the smallest and the weakest of all nations. And the Scripture tells us that God doesn't choose the mighty, but He chooses the weak to accomplish His purpose because that demonstrates who's doing it. And that's why, as we referred last time, when the Midianites become a problem again and Gideon is told to deal with the Midianites, God strips him down to the point he's only got 300 men to go against this monstrous army. Well, it becomes quite obvious <laughs> where the victory comes from. Certainly 300 men aren't going to go out there and knock off tens of thousands uh, in their own strength. The victory comes from God himself. This act of this gift, this sacrifice that Israel made at this time that these army officers made is reminiscent of the great contribution that Israel made back at the time when they were first getting ready to establish the tabernacle. And you may remember that, but let me just uh, turn back to uh, Exodus chapter 36 for a moment and refresh our minds on this. In Exodus chapter 36, verses 4 to 6, we read what really is another amazing uh, statement in Scripture. God is, of course, through Moses instructed that the tabernacle be built, and, and now it's in the process of being underwritten. The Israelites are supposed to supply whatever is needed to build the tabernacle. And in verse 4 we read of, Numbers th of Exodus 36, And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it out of the faith that God had built in and out of their sense of, of what, they, what they owed to the Lord, they poured out more than could be used to build the tabernacle. It was just piling up there. And Moses had to finally tell them, stop! We can't use it all. Stop your contribution. Wouldn't that be amazing? pastor gets up and says, please don't put anything in the offering this week. <laughs> <laughs> We've got too much. Amen. <laughs> I've yet to hear that, but you know, that could happen. That could happen. I think when men and women are truly grateful in, from the depths of their hearts for what God has done for them, I don't think his work will ever suffer lack for manpower or for resources. I think that when his work does suffer lack, I think it's not because the resources aren't there, because God is the one who supplies every need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's because his people do not have a heart of gratitude. Or as one friend of mine who used to be my pastor when I was a kid, he wrote an article on the attitude of gratitude. The attitude of gratitude. The Lord tells us that we're in everything to give thanks. In the midst of everything to give thanks. We don't necessarily thank God for everything, but in everything we give thanks. And that's what the scripture tells us. As I contemplated this this morning, I looked up a couple of other passages that I thought would be helpful to, to make this point a little broader. In the um, 31st chapter of Second Chronicles, we have another amazing account there. The scripture is full of these little vignettes 
of how God's people respond to him under certain circumstances. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, we have another amazing description here of what God's people would do. In this case, after a long time in which the Israelites have, have been under the domination of a, the Jews, actually in this case, the domination of godless kings, God raises up a godly king whose name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah reinstitutes the Passover, which had been neglected for a long time. And he also reinstitutes the operation of the sacrificial system. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the Asherim, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. Now that's a very similar statement to the one that we've just studied. In this case, Israel went out and destroyed a pagan nation. In this particular case in uh, Second Chronicles, what has happened is they've, they've, they've seen a revival sweep the land. And so they're going out and they're destroying all the emblems of paganism and all the altars for pagan worship in the land. Verse 2. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites by their divisions according to his service, both priests and Levites, for burnt offerings, for peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. He also appointed the king's portion of his goods for the burnt offerings, namely for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbath and for the new moons and for the fixed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. Now, what, what's happening here, the king himself is dedicating himself to finance all the basic offerings that are supposed to happen. We've already studied this recently, these offerings, and, and he's making it his own responsibility to see to it that those sacrifices are available for every one of these required offerings. Verse 4, and he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought it in abundantly, the tithe of all. And the sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of sacred gifts which were consecrated to the Lord their God and placed them in heaps. In the third month they began to make the heaps and finish them by the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and, and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah the chief priest of the house of Zadok said to him, since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over, for the Lord has blessed his people, and this great quantity is left over. I mean, they were just giving and giving and giving until it was piling up in heaps. And the priests and Levites were, were totally provided for and beyond. Why? Well, Hezekiah said the reason to provide for them was so that they could do the service of the Lord and they didn't have to spend their time out there raising sheep and raising grain to, in order to provide for their family because that wasn't the way God ordained it to be. He said that the people were to provide for the priests and Levites so they could commit their full time to the duty of the Lord's service. And so now, as revival has swept the land, what are they doing? They're doing what God has commanded and they're doing it in abundance. Paul ran across this same situation. And you're probably familiar with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Paul, of course, it was not a man to ignore people's generosity and would uh, frequently comment about it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at the first verse, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Remember, Paul had seen the Macedonian call, and he'd gone over there and, and gone to Philippi, and the ministry had been introduced there at Philippi, which was in Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I mean, what you can see flowing out of this passage is the same thing that flows out of the Second Chronicles passage and flows out of this Numbers passage, and that is an overflowing heart of gratitude which resulted in the meeting of the needs of the service in abundance. I mean, how many times have you run across somebody who just begs to be able to give? Instead of the pastor having to beg the people to give, the people are begging the pastor to give. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when true revival sweeps the land and, and lives are changed and, and people have the attitude of gratitude for what God has done. We're told in, in the Numbers passage that the amount of the offering which was given to Moses and Eliezer was 16,750 shekels of the sanctuary. Well, uh, as best as we're able to determine what a shekel was in terms of weight, it roughly translates to about 420 pounds of gold which in today's standards would be a couple of million dollars. So that's not a bad offering <laughs> for one shot here. Unsolicited offering given by God's people for the work of the tabernacle. This gold was taken before the Lord at the tabernacle. What we have to remember is, of course, that this gold came in ornamental form it came in the form of signet rings and earrings and necklaces. We read all about that already. It also, of course, came in the form of amulets and good luck charms and other things that probably had to do with the worship of the pagan gods. So I believe that all of this gold was probably melted down. I, you know, God wasn't going to have some emblem of some pagan deity brought into his tabernacle, even if it was gold. So I believe that it was all passed through the fire, as it were, and, and melted down and made into ingots and probably brought in that form before the sanctuary and placed there at the tabernacle. And this passage tells us that it was to be a memorial before the Lord. A memorial before the Lord. The word memorial can be translated as historical record, as that which stirs up remembrance. Remember, that's what the Passover was. Every time they were to do the Passover, it was as a memorial concerning what God had done in delivering Israel out of Egypt and, and the death angel and saving them from the death angel by the blood on the doorpost. This was to be a memorial. It was to testify to future generations of the great miraculous intervention of God in not only delivering Midian into the hands of Israel, but not allowing a single Israelite soldier to be lost in the process. Truly amazing. And when later generations would say, what meaneth this gold? 
as Shakespeare would put it. Those who respond would say, if they remembered, it was because of the great gratitude of the men in the mighty victory, miraculous victory, that God had given over the evil Midianites. Do we remember the miraculous victory that God has given to us? It's, it's really easy to be trapped into the mundane uh, daily uh, affairs of life and to be so busy that we, we forget where we're headed. We forget who we are, that we are children of the kingdom, and that our goal is not to build up wealth and power for ourselves here, but to pass it on into, into the kingdom. And we need to leave behind a memorial too. Uh, there's, a, there's a chorus that, that goes along that line. I've forgotten the words of it now, but you know that, that those who come behind us will, will see what, uh, what God has done in the lives of those that have gone before. Nearly 400 years later, David, the great king of Israel, would make a similar memorial uh, to God after he had also been given victory over enemies in 1 Chronicles. Chapter 18, reading at verse 9, God has raised up David, of course, and given him the task of, of restoring to Israel all that God had given to Israel as the promised land. And in verse 9 we read, And when too, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, to king David, to greet him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and had defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with two, and Hadaram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. And David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold, which he had carried away from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, and from Amalek. When you think about it, you know, David was not a poor man. Uh, David had a great deal of wealth, but all of this that was brought in could easily have been kept by David as the loot from all his victories and as tribute given to him by others, gifts given to him. But he, he gave them into the service of the temple as a memorial, as a memorial for what God had done. He acknowledged that his victory was not won in his strength, but was one in the strength of the Lord. And I think his thoughts went back to the early years of his life when he stood before that giant Goliath. And although he was filled with, with, the wrath, with wrath against, uh, against Goliath, Goliath and against the Philistines, it was the wrath of God. And, and he was jealous for his God. He wasn't jealous for his people. It wasn't like, oh no, my team's being beat. How terrible, I better help. It's because his God was being defamed by these godless Philistines. And so he went out in the strength of the Lord and, and with one, and he picks up five, five stones, right? But he only needs one, one stone. And he topples the giant. And he knew that it was God who gave him the victory. And even though David will make some stupid mistakes in his life ahead, I mean, he will just plain flat out sin in, in many instances. But in spite of that, Underlying it all, in the depths of his heart, was a gratitude for God, to God, for what God had done for him. And, and this shows up every once in a while as it overflows out of his life, as it has in this particular instance, when he dedicates all these gifts which have been given to him to God. Well, if we move on now in Numbers, we move to the 32nd chapter. And we come to a very interesting little account here that could have divided Israel. 
but God did not allow it to divide Israel. Let's read the first five verses. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliale, Sibam, Nebo, and Baon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not take us across the Jordan. The question, of course, why do the leaders of Reuben and Gad at this time make this request? And of course, the answer to that question has been much debated by commentators down through time. Some commentators believe that this was an act of rebellion and selfishness. They're saying, give us this land. We don't want to go over the Jordan. You guys go take it over there. This is good enough for us over here. That's the attitude some commentators have. And as we get to the next uh, portion of this chapter, when we read Moses' response to them, we get the feeling that Moses too was suspicious about their motives. Now, it's very possible that there were some amongst Reuben and Gad who thought that if they got the land over here, that they wouldn't be subject to any more warfare and that they were hoping that they didn't have to fight anymore. That probably was the thought of some. We have to remember that uh, the 600,000 men of war of Israel were not a homogeneous group. I mean, not everybody there was yeah, God's our leader and Moses are, is, is his representative and we're going to do whatever God says. There were some there who were, as you know very often, saying, hey, I think this is enough now. This is good enough for us. You guys go do the battle. There probably were some like that. And I don't think that the commentators who, who point that out are totally wrong. Uh, some believe that it was Reuben's request to have land now because they were thinking of primogeniture. You know, the fact that Reuben was supposed to be the firstborn, therefore he was supposed to get the first inheritance. And of course, we know Reuben was displaced by Judah, but that the Reubenites weren't willing to accept it, that's a possibility. But of course, the question is, what's Gad got to do with it then? What are they into this for? Because Gad does not have this, this right. I'd like to put a more positive spin on this, however, at this point, and take into account the reason given in the passage for the request. The wording of the, the verses here, particularly the, the first verse, implies that Reuben and Gad had huge numbers of animals, that God had blessed them and their animals had multiplied and they had herds that were almost out of control in, in terms of their size, and, and that they probably had more animals than any other single tribe. And then, of course, on top of this, they got their share of the Midianite booty of the animals that were captured for the Midianites. Remember, it was divided up amongst all the people. The, the thousand Reubenites and the thousand Gadites each got their portion, and then the, those two tribes got the congregational portion of it. So probably between them, they got another 100,000 animals or some number like that on top of what they already had. Now, I've never herded sheep or cattle, for that matter. 
but I can imagine if you got lots of them out there, <laughs> after a while it could be a real pain <laughs> trying to keep these animals all under guard and under sight and so that you don't lose them to either animals or to rustlers or anybody else. And, and so I think this was actually motivated by desperation. What are we going to do? <laughs> we can't go across there and fight over there and leave our families over here with all these herds and, and flocks and, and no protection. What's interesting is that archaeologists who have studied this part of the world, which is the Transjordan area, have discovered that from, from what is available, there seems to have been a very sparse population in Transjordan at that particular time. It was not a heavily populated area. Now Israel had taken the land by conquest. They had overrun the Amorites and they had captured the cities here in the Transjordan area. And as they looked at the land, they thought, this land may not be the best for agriculture, but it's great for, for flocks, and we got lots of flocks, so why don't we just stay here? This would be a good idea. It's interesting that this seemed reasonable to Reuben and Gad, because it seemed like it would solve their problem. I, I don't know about you, but I, I can understand the reasoning here. If I know my flocks are being cared for. My wife and my ch children have been ensconced in a city with walls. They are safe. Then I can go do whatever I have to do, knowing that they are safe back there. But if you're thinking about the safety of your family and, and your flocks and everything while you're trying to do something else, you're kind of divided here. I think that was part of their thinking, if not the bulk of their thinking here. Now, whether this was a foolish choice or not is somewhat debatable, however. I don't know if you've ever been to Jordan, the, the modern country of Jordan, which is where we're talking about here, Transjordan, across the Jordan, east of the Jordan River. But it's a pretty dry place over there. When, when you go up the, the escarpment uh, to the top to get over to the modern city of Amman, which is the capital of modern Jordan, which is, of course, the same city of the, uh, in Jesus' day that was called Philadelphia, and which before that was the city of Ammon, from which Ammon comes, that it's very dry in there. And you can understand that it's probably not the best land for agriculture. Most of the Jordanian agriculture occurs down in the Jordan Valley, where water can be extracted from the Jordan River. And it's, it's, it is cropped on the east side. But you get up on top of the plateau up there, it's pretty dry. And it's not a very good place for agriculture, and probably wasn't then. Any, much more than it is now. So they probably thought this was a wise choice for them. Be great for crops. We're not too interested in plowing the ground anyway, you know. Maybe that was their attitude. I don't know. But they will be on the frontier. If they stay over there, they're on the frontier. They are not behind the defensive line of the Jordan River. They don't have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the uh, Dead Sea to serve as a barrier, as a front line of defense. They will be exposed over there to any attack that would come from neighboring nations. They would also be exposed to the influence of those nations. They would be kind of rubbing shoulders with these pagan nations, and certainly that paganism might infiltrate into these clans. And as we know historically, that's exactly what will happen. But to look at it on the positive side, they will serve as a bulwark. They will serve as a first line of defense for the rest of Israel. So that anybody attacking, most of the attacks would come from the north and east and thus through Transjordan and across the Jordan River. 
they would be the first to have to fight and that would give the other tribes a, a, a front line of defense and, and time to get their armies together to try to get over there to help. So, you know, it has a good side and a bad side, a plus and a minus, I guess you could say, as we look at it that way. Personally, I, I don't think there's any real reason to believe that the Reubenites and the Gadites had ulterior motives here in their request. Oh, probably in the case of some, but I think the leaders were we're thinking honestly and really meant what they said here. We'll settle here, but we'll go with you into the land when it comes time for the attack. God had ordained to Israel the promised land. What was the promised land? What constituted this land grant that God was giving his people? It's actually a fief. It, it's a land given by a superior to an inferior for use as long as they're in obedience to the superior. That's how it worked in the Middle Ages, and that's really what God is doing here. This is your land, and you may live here as long as you're obedient. When you get to be disobedient, the scripture is replete with promises that they would be scattered, and of course, we know that's ultimately what will happen. So, I don't think there's any reason not to think that Transjordan was within the scope of the promise. Because the scripture tells us the promise was from the Euphrates River in the north, which is in modern-day Syria, all the way down to the brook of Egypt, which is in the Sinai Desert, and, and, and that whole strip in between. And certainly, it probably included the plateau of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River. And so I think they were within the scope of the promised land. And the fact that eventually, yes, they were given the land, Moses told them they could have the land, that God had ordained that. In fact, it's possible that God had put it in their minds to say, why don't you give us this piece? Because God wanted them there to serve as a bulwark, as a frontier for the remaining number of, the, the remaining tribes. Plus the fact, only there'll be two less tribes that would have to squeeze into Canaan. If you haven't been to Israel, you don't know how small that place is. And when you get over there, you discover that you, you think, you know, when you read the scripture, oh, well, you know, you have to spend a day in Galilee and a day getting from Galilee to Jerusalem and then another day from Jerusalem down south. You do the whole thing in one day, you know. Just, <laughs> you, know. you can take off in Jerusalem in the morning, go up to Galilee, spend some time up there and come back to Jerusalem at night and all in one day. It's easy. It's not far. Now, it's far if you walk it. <laughs> as Jesus did and as Mary and Joseph did with the donkey, but... You know, when you're in a bus or a car, it's not long at all. Yeah. Well, let's look at uh, verse 6. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourself sit here? You see, Moses <laughs> suspects that they're, they're not being honest. Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully." Verse 12, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, 
to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. You will destroy all these people. One of, the, one of the messages that comes out of that passage is, yes, God is sovereign, but God holds his people responsible for obedience. And if his people will not be obedient, they bring wrath upon themselves. See, God had promised that he would bring Messiah through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. But God will, will deal with this nation in, 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 a, in a way of judgment if they are not obedient. And we saw it already where God said to Moses, stand aside, Moses, and I'm going to torch the whole lot, and I'm going to raise up a new nation through you. You see, that's continuing the line. Moses was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There, there's a, a real tension here between obedience and, and disobedience and the purposes of God. God's will will be done, but he will allow us to be disobedient if we so choose and in the process to destroy the work that he is doing at that particular moment. He will go a different route if necessary. You know, we can't probe all that. We can't understand all of that. I don't think myself anyway. But somehow we have to remember that in it all, we, we are subject to, to the divine plan of God and to the divine will of God, which, you know, is inexorable. But at the same time, we are responsible for ourselves before him. Somehow that tension comes together and, and it exists in Scripture. And so it will be for Israel here. These tribes, if they insist, we're going to stay here and you guys go win your own land. We've won our peace here. Uh, he said, if you do that, you're going to be like the guys before who stood at Kadesh Barnea after hearing all the good word, and then they decide, no, we're not going into the land because there are giants in the land. Just as that whole generation was destroyed, so you will destroy this generation. Moses obviously is assuming the worst motives here, isn't he? And we, we really don't have time to develop it this morning, but you'll notice he gives a little sermon here. Sermons are good. Sermons are needful. Remembering the past is needful. And he says to them, this is what happened before. If you do this, this is going to be the same and the results will be the same. Change your way. Well, whether that was warning because the Reubenites and the Gadites were thinking wrongly or whether Moses was jumping to the conclusions, we can't prove. But all we know is the outcome is right. The outcome is right. They will go. They will fight and they will get their land, and they will help Israel get their portion, and God will accomplish his sovereign plan, and we can be grateful. Well, we'll, we'll pick up with that passage uh, next week.